Amen. Beautiful job. Steve, thank you for sharing that with us. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and let me just remind you, we've got to remind each other where we were last week so we can move forward this week. The Bible tells us in chapter 11 that in the springtime, when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab. David ought to be leading his troops into battle, but instead he decides to stay home. And one day he goes up on the roof of his home, roof of his palace, and he's walking around on the roof. Nothing to do, just time to kill. And he's walking around, and he happens to notice there is a beautiful woman bathing. Now, he cannot help that he has seen it the first time. But for David, his glance turns into a gaze, and he begins to lust over this beautiful woman. He sends for someone and inquires about this woman, and he learns that her name is Bathsheba, and she has a husband named Uriah. Well, that does not stop David. David sends for her and brings her into his home, and David sleeps with Bathsheba. Afterwards, David sends her away, and David thinks the story is done until a little while later he receives word that Bathsheba is, in fact, pregnant. Now he's got a problem on his hands. He's got to hide this sin because nobody can ever know what he's done. Word can never get out, and so he begins to manipulate a plan in his mind to cover up what he's done. And so he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the battle lines. Uriah comes in, and David begins to ask questions. How is the battle going? How is Joab doing? How are we looking in this battle? But David does not care about the battle. All David cares about is covering up his sins. And so he tells Uriah to go home and to be with his wife. Go relax. The text says go wash your feet. It means go enjoy yourself. Go relax at home. You've been working hard. And David's hope is that Uriah will go home. He will be with his wife. And when he finds out later that she is pregnant, he will believe that he is the father. Pretty good plan, don't you think? The problem is that Uriah is a man of integrity. And so Uriah does not go home to be with his wife. Instead, Uriah stays out by the door and sleeps on the ground. He will not go and be with his wife because he says, my fellow soldiers are in battle. How could I go in and relax? And besides all that, even the Ark of the Covenant is out. So who am I to go and enjoy time and be with my wife? So David's in a problem. And he begins to think of another plan. And now he's got a plan. I'll get Uriah drunk, and if he's drunk, then he will go home and be with his wife. And so he gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah still will not go home to his wife. And so in a last-ditch effort, David takes a paper, and he writes out a note to Joab. And the note is this, put Uriah on the front lines of battle and when the, the fighting is the fiercest, have the men pull back, leaving Uriah by himself. This would no doubt mean that Uriah would be killed. <clears throat> and so he hands this note to Uriah, and Uriah delivers his own death warrant to Joab. Joab follows what the king had proclaimed him to do, and then he sends word back that Uriah was killed. 
Well, there's a time of mourning. There's a time and people are weeping. Bathsheba is weeping. The town is weeping. But the Bible says after the time of mourning, David brings Bathsheba into his palace. And all the people would look at this and they would say, what a glorious king to take care of this poor young widow woman. And in David's heart, in his mind, David says, I have done it. I have hidden my sin. Nobody knows. And I will take this to the grave with me. It reminds me of a a woman who was in a car accident. She got out on the loop and she was driving down the highway. Before she knew it, she was in a terrible automobile accident. After the accident, she climbed out of her car and she looked at the car. The car was no doubt totaled. And she saw the man in the other car and looked over at his car. His car was no doubt totaled. And so she went to the man and she said, boy, we're blessed, aren't we? And he said, well, I I suppose so. She said, well, look at our cars. They are totally destroyed. But look at me and you. We don't have a scratch on our body. I think this is a sign from God that we should be friends and we should celebrate together. And the man smiled. He said, well, I agree with that. And then she went to her car and she said, oh, my goodness, look at this. And she reached in and she pulled out a bottle of wine. And she said, my car is destroyed, but God made it to where this bottle of wine did not even crack. She said, you know what we should do? We should celebrate our good fortune and let's share this wine together. And the man said, that sounds like a good plan. And so she gave the bottle to him and he took the cap off and he took five big drinks He drank half the bottle, and then he handed it back to the lady. And the lady took the bottle, and she put the cap on it and handed it back to him. And he said, well, lady, aren't you going to have a drink? And she said, nope, I'm going to wait for the cops to show up. (laughs) It is a plan of manipulation, and David believes he has got off free from it. But the very last line in chapter 11, it says this. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The question in our heart throughout this whole reading is simply this. Where is God? Where is God? There's so much evil. There's so much corruption. Will God let David get away with so much evil in his life? But all this changes when we get to chapter 12. You see, chapter 11 has been the work of David, but in chapter 12, we begin to see the work of God. And so our question is, how does God respond to our rebellion? When the limit is pushed, what is the response of God? And the answer comes quickly in chapter 12. Nathan is the prophet. Nathan is the one who is to encourage the king to fulfill his obligations and to rebuke him if it is necessary. Now, you'll notice in chapter 12, verse 1, the text begins, and it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. If you paid attention in the previous chapter, you will see that there are many times that David sent. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah, and then David sent Uriah back in to battle. David has sent out of his royal power, but now in this chapter, everything changes, and it is no longer David who is doing the sending, but it is God who sent. There is a power change. You see, God will let us use our power. 
He will let us use our authority. He will let us use our strength. God will let us use our intellect. But there comes a time when God says enough is enough. And in our passage before us, God has said enough is enough. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, how will he confront the king? Well, let's see. Look at the latter part of verse 1. It says, he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which, had, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like, catch it, it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He tells a story. Nathan tells a parable, and this is the, the point of it. There are two men. There's a rich man, and there's a poor man. The rich man is extremely rich, and the poor man is extremely poor. The poor man has one little lamb. And it's not even though it is a lamb, because the Bible says the man would, would carry the lamb. He would feed the lamb from his table. He would feed the lamb from his cup. Some of you, you do this with your dog at home, don't you? It's kind of nasty, but I know you do it. <clears throat> and so this is what the man's doing with his lamb. He loves this lamb. It's like a child to him. And notice he only has one. He does not have flocks. He does not have herds. He has one single lamb that he has brought up and that he loves dearly. And then there's a rich man. It's not that the rich man has many lambs. He has flocks and herds. And so there's a great deal to the rich man. Well, one day a visitor comes in to see the rich man. And so the rich man says, well, I need to prepare a meal for this visitor. And he thinks to himself, and he says, you know what sounds good? Lamb chops. Lamb chops sound good. And so he says, I need a lamb. But rather than go and get out of his multitude, because he has many, and to this man they're just livestock, but rather than to deplete what he has, he goes and he finds the poor man and he takes his one and only lamb and he prepares supper with that man's pet lamb. Now, the response we're looking at here is, how is David going to respond? When David hears this, what is the response that he's going to have? In verse 5 it says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity. The Bible makes it clear that, that David burned with anger. And wouldn't you? You hear this story and you think, how cold-hearted, how selfish, how could a man do such a thing? And so David is livid, he is angry, and he says, because this man has no pity, he deserves to die. But what the law says in Exodus is that he should repay four times the amount. So I will allow this man to repay four times the amount. And then he hears the words. If you highlight in your Bible, highlight this. 
the prophet says, you are the man. You are the man. You have given your verdict, but David, you are the man. David, you are the rich man. David, you are the one who has been so selfish. David, you are the one who is taken from the poor man. David, you are the one that you are against. Now, just imagine, if you will, up until this point, David believes that nobody knows about it. And he believes that he's going to take his sin to the grave with him. But all of a sudden, he hears these words, you are the man, and I just got to believe that in that moment, his heart begins to beat rapidly. In that moment, his blood pressure, it begins to shoot through his body. In that moment, his throat gets dry. He doesn't know what to say. Beads of sweat begin to appear on his forehead. He cannot believe what he is hearing. David, you are the man. Some of you know that feeling. You've had a time in your life. You've had a time to where you had a sin and you thought it was hidden well, but then it all came up and your life was changed forever. Maybe it was the, the moment that you realized a marriage was going to end. Maybe it was a moment when an addiction came out and you could not hide it any longer. And all of a sudden the weight of all of it and the weight of what has happened and the weight of what you have done, it is weighing upon your shoulders. And I believe it could be for the first time David realizes the sin that he has committed. See, he's been entrapped in this cycle and he's been trying to cover up his sin and he's been so involved in it that maybe he has not had the opportunity to stand back and to see the greatness of what he has done. And so when he hears these words, you are the man, everything is laid out before him. You see, I believe that when we are living under sin, we're living under a false reality. The alcoholic doesn't see his addiction as a problem. There's a false reality. The family does, the spouse does, the co-workers do, but the alcoholic does not. The one who is living a life of greed sees his greed as just simply ambition. But those around him look and they say, it is destroying your life. The adulterer goes in and a little flirtatious but says, it's no big deal. But those on the outside say, you're going to destroy your marriage. You see, sin leads us to a false reality. I was thinking about it this week. Just a, a story. One, one Wednesday night, Brittany and I come early on Wednesdays, and we, we lead music um, in the youth. And so we come early, and we do a little sound check, you know, make sure everything sounds okay. And then we go next door, and we eat supper. And then after supper, we come back in to do the youth service. And so on this occasion, uh, I had left my tablet on the music stand. On the stage, there's a, a podium, and I left my tablet, and that's what I was going to preach from. And so I came back in, and I could not find my tablet. You ever lost something? Raise your hand. You've lost something, right? Okay, you've lost something. And then it's like, where did it go? I know I left it right here, but I cannot find it. And so I'm looking all around for my tablet, and there's a young man sitting in the very back. And I ask him, I say, hey, have you seen my tablet? It, it was sitting right here on this podium. And he said, no, sir, hadn't seen it. And so I'm looking around more and more. And finally, I said, would you come down here and help me look? And so he starts coming down, and I notice he's wearing basketball shorts. And in his basketball shorts, there's this, my tablet. 
That's what it is, my tablet. And he has taken my tablet and put it in his pocket, and it's so obvious that there it is. And so I get a little mad, but I'm going to play this out, okay? He comes down, and I say, well, buddy, I'm looking for my tablet. It was white, had a white case on it. Have you seen it? No, sir, I hadn't seen it. And I, I'm looking, and I say, well, it's about this big. Have you seen it? No, sir, I hadn't seen it. And then a few minutes later, it falls down out of his shorts, and it's at his feet. And I go, oh, there's my tablet. And he says, well, how did it get there? And I say, well, I don't know. Had you not seen it? Because it looked like it fell out of your shorts. And he said, I've never seen that before in my life. And then we just both kind of stood there for a few minutes. He looked down at it, and I looked down at it, didn't know what to do next. But I'm telling you, when you have sin in your life, you're living in a false reality. There is an illusion that everything's going to be okay. There is an illusion that you're going to get away with this, and there will be no consequence. There is an illusion that you can bring your life back to normal anytime you want to. But the truth is, that is a lie from Satan. And so there's the false reality, and it hits David like a ton of bricks. Well, let's, let's continue. And I want us to see the passage into sin. Look in your Bible. It continues, and it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. God says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you my master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little, I would add to you as much more. He says, I have given you so much. See, I believe a step into sin is when we forget the blessings of God. There is a passage into sin when we forget about the blessings of God on our life. And so the Lord is speaking to David, and he says, David, don't you remember? David, I have been so good to you. David, I anointed you. David, I gave you. David, I delivered you. Don't you remember when, when you were anointed king? Don't you remember when I delivered you from the hand of Saul? And I gave you his house and his property, and I gave you the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And David, if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. David, you have been blessed since you were a young man. David, there is no way that you could say that you were deprived in the least. How sad it is when someone so blessed chooses to rebel against God. I think there's something intrinsic to us to want what we cannot have. And we see that in the very beginning. In Genesis 2, God goes to the garden and says, look around you. There is so much good. There is so much beauty around you. But there's one stipulation. There's one rule. You see this tree? Just stay away from this one tree. You can have everything else. Look at the beauty. Look at all that you can have, everything around you. You can have it all. But there's this one tree I want you to stay away from. But that proved to be too much. There's the old saying that says, the grass is always greener on the other side. For some reason, we, we buy into the lie that God is so good to others, but yet he is stingy to us. God has blessed others so much, and their life is so good, but yet God is restrictive to me. 
and we look at folks and we buy into the reality that if I could just have their marriage, then it would be enough. Or if I could have their job, if I could have their background, if I could have their education, if I had the amount of money in the bank that they have, then I wouldn't have any problems. You see, their grass is a whole lot greener than my grass. And Satan has won many over by buying into the lie that the grass is greener on this side. And so what you need is over here, and it's not what you have currently. And many lives are destroyed by that. And so David has so much at his disposal, so much before him. But the one thing he wants is that in which he should not take. And I think it hurts us in our culture because we have social media I don't know what yours is. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's Instagram or Twitter. And and you know when you get on, let's say, Facebook, you get on and all you see are the highlights of someone's life. All you see is the good stuff. I mean, you see somebody and they're going on vacation and the beach is beautiful. And then you look at your life and you got a pile of laundry six foot high and you say, well, gosh, I want that life. Are you looking, somebody got this huge blessing, and they post pictures of their kids, and their kids look perfect. You know, they behave well, they're doing what's right, and they look so cute. And then you look at your kid, and he's got a baseball bat over his brother, and he's about ready to smack him. And so you shake your head, and you just say, man, if I had that life. And today, maybe you look on social media, and you see someone that's your age, but they look 20 years younger. And you say, my goodness, how do they age so well? Can I just tell you a secret? They did not age well. They are using what is called a filter. Okay? (laughs) If you don't get anything else, get this. There are filters on our phones, and they can take away wrinkles, and they can make your eyes pop and make your eyes bigger. They can make your face skinnier. And so there's people that look one way on social media, but when you see them in real life, whoa! You know? (laughs) And it's like, that cannot be the same person. It's all a lie. You look on Facebook and social media, and it's not true. It's not reality. But it looks like, man, their life is so easy, and everything's going so smooth. If I could just have that. And so that's what David does also. Man, there's something in life to be content with what you have. I believe that we could sit here all day and we could try to name the blessings that God has poured out upon us and we would run out of time. We just could not exhaust the list. It says in Philippians 2, it says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It says, I've learned to be content no matter if I have a lot or if I just have a little. So the passage into sin is when we forget the blessings of God. Number two, the passage into sin is when we break the terms of the relationship. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, it says, Why do you despise the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God says, What you have done, David, is you have despised the word of God. You have shown contempt to the word of the Lord. You have done what is evil. David, you have broken two of the main commandments. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. You have despised the word of God. You say, well, what does that mean, despise? You see, there is a standard to the relationship. David was serving as king, 
but he was to be under the authority of God. God's authority, God's law is shown in his word. And so when David broke the word, he was despising the word of God. In other words, he was saying, God, I know what you want out of my life, but I think I know better. And so I'm going to do it my way, and I'm not going to do it your way. Anytime that we sin in life, we're despising the word of God. We're saying, God, I know what you want. I know what your book says. I know what you expect out of my life, but I believe that I know better. And so David broke the terms of the relationship. And let me just remind you this morning, there are terms to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It does not mean that you just walk down an aisle and you sign a card. There's so much more to it than that. It doesn't mean that you just go through some baptism waters and then you go back to life as normal. There is so much more to it. In Luke 9, 23, it says, Jesus said to them all, not just the really committed ones. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and then follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross every single day. Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Do, do you get the word? I've been crucified. My life is done. Now I'm going to honor God. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There is a standard of Christianity that if we're going to claim to be a follower of Christ, then our life will be marked by self-sacrifice and our life will be marked by self-denial and we will do things that are not easy but we will do them because God has called us to do them and when we live in a culture that has made it all about we just follow when we want to follow we attend church when we want to attend church we give when we want to give we do this when we want to do this but there's a standard to being a follower of Christ and I'll just remind you the standard is very high look at the next verse he says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You see, it could be that up to this point, David was justifying his sin. And maybe he said this, maybe he said, you know, it was not me that killed Uriah, it was the Ammonites. It wasn't me, I didn't kill the man, I haven't killed anybody. It was the Ammonites who killed Uriah. But God comes and he says, you are the one. You have smitten Uriah with the sword. You can't play games. You cannot cover it up. And you cannot justify your actions. And so step number three is we cannot justify our sin. And some of us are very good at that, aren't we? We know we have a problem with anger. But we say, man, if my kids would act better, then I wouldn't be angry. Right? Or maybe we have a, a problem with being impatient. I struggle with that. And you say, well, if people around me were not so ignorant, then I wouldn't be so impatient. Or, amen, I like that. Or maybe you say, well, if there wasn't so much sensuality in our world, I wouldn't struggle with lust. Or maybe you say, you know, if I had more money in the bank, then I would not struggle with worry in my life. Or if you knew what I was going through in my life, then you would understand why I am bitter. And we take these problems in our life and we justify them. And so God comes and he says, listen, you have forgot the blessings. 
You forgot what I've done for you, David. And you have justified your actions. And you have despised my word to you. And now because of that, David, what's going to happen is this. There will be consequences. There is always consequence to sin. You cannot escape it. There will always be consequence to sin. Now look at verse 10. The text says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He said, The sword shall never depart from your house. Do you realize this? All said and done, because of David's sin, Four sons died prematurely because of his sin, because of this one day that he gave in to his lust, because of this one episode with Bathsheba, all told, he lost four sons. When you begin to look through the next chapters and you flip through, you see that for the rest of his kingdom, there is a struggle of power. For the rest of his kingdom, there is evil. For the rest of his kingdom, there is this shadow that traces its way back to what he did with Bathsheba. For his lifetime, he never gets past the sin that he committed. And so he loses four sons. Do you remember what he told Nathan about the man in the story? How was he to repay the lamb? Four times the amount. Well, now it's come upon his life, it's come upon his family, and the sword is so thick that four are going to die. And then it it says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take away, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David went secretly in with Bathsheba, but God says the punishment is going to be your wife will be taken and it will be done publicly. And in 2 Samuel 16, we read of David's son Absalom, who sleeps with David's concubines, and he does so in front of all of Israel. And so there was a price to be paid. And then it goes on and it says, Nevertheless, because of by this deed, this verse 14, by the deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is the baby that came out of the relationship with Bathsheba. She has had the baby. The child is there. We don't know exactly how old the child is. But Nathan said, here's another punishment. That child, consequence, that child is going to die. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know the answer. That's tough, isn't it? Here's a man, and, and he sins greatly. And because of his sin, a little innocent baby is going to die. I'm not going to pretend to have the answers on that for you. I just want to remind you of this. There's a consequence to sin. There's a consequence to sin, and we still see it today. There may be a a, a mother who is on crack, and she has a baby. The baby dies, but the mother lives. There's a consequence to sin. It may be that uh, you grew up in a home, and you had a father who was an alcoholic. 
Well, that sin of that father has affected you for your entire life, and you will never be the same because of the sin of your father. You see, there are consequences, and what we must understand and we must realize is that my sin does not just affect me. Because some of us, we buy into this mentality that, you know what, it's my life. If I want to screw it up, I can screw it up. But it's not just your life. When you choose to rebel against God and you choose to say yes to sin, the people around you are the ones who will be hurt the most. And so our sin, when we give into it, it's not just us that it affects, but it affects all of those around us. And so can, can you imagine as David goes in, and he goes into Bathsheba, and she's holding the little baby. And he goes in, and he must tell Bathsheba, the baby's going to die. The baby's going to die because of the sin that I committed. There are always consequences to sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is, is death. But I want to remind you, I know that's, that's hard for us to swallow, but I want to remind you that the Lord has come so that we will not have to live under the bondage of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a problem. Sin is a problem. But by the grace and the mercy of God, he has done all that he can do to offer forgiveness of sin so that we no longer have to live under the curse of sin. So look back at verse 13, and we'll close with this. Verse 13, it says, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. First time we see it. And notice that David does not try to get away with it. Remember, Adam and Eve, they tried to make excuses. David does not make an excuse. David, for the first time, he realizes what he has done. And he steps back and he just says to the prophet, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no denial. There's no excuse I have sinned, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just as close as it could be together, David says, I have sinned, and Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And I want to remind you that true repentance is met with genuine forgiveness. If you look in your life and you see that there is sin, maybe there's a sin that you have struggled with for a long time in your life, I want to tell you there is forgiveness found at the cross of Jesus Christ. He says the Lord has taken away your sin. And we begin to think there's no way. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of murder. How could the Lord take his sin away? He took it away because his repentance was genuine. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and then he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Just imagine that. Every sin that you have committed... Every lie you've told, every thought that you've had, David's murder, David's adultery, whatever it is, said it was placed aside and it was nailed to the cross of Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. I want to ask you to close your eyes. 
And I want you to think about it in your life. Is there anything in your life that is separating you from God? Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? And maybe the enemy has come and said, you know what, it's really not a big deal. It's really no problem. You can stop anytime you want to. You can get out of it anytime you want to. But maybe for the first time today, you look at it and you realize that it is a serious problem. How David's story could have been different, what if he would have repented before the prophet came? Everything might have changed. Everything might have been different. David had opportunity after opportunity to repent, but he never would. Maybe this is your opportunity to repent. So maybe you're here this morning, and you have never been forgiven of your sins. Forgiveness comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Today's the day that you could find salvation, that you could find forgiveness. Maybe you're here, you know you're saved, you know you have been forgiven, but if you're honest, you say, I've been living in sin, and I just bought into the lie that it's not a big deal, but the Word shows me it is. So I want to challenge you to repent. You can repent where you are, you can come up to one of us, you can pray at an altar, but realize the seriousness of sin. My prayer is that we leave this place with a pure and a contrite heart before God. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the time that we've had together, Lord, and thank you for your word, how it speaks to us and how it challenges us. Lord, I pray that your will will be done during this time. God, if there's anyone here who does not know you as their Savior, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for the sin in here, God, that we have brought in the unconfessed sin, God, the hidden sin, the sin that nobody else knows about. Lord, I pray there will be an honest confession which leads to an honest repentance, God. And we can leave this place, God, knowing that we have been forgiven. Our sin has been washed away, God. Our sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west, God, so we can enjoy our salvation. Lord, we ask that your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to stand with us. If you need to make a decision, you need to join a church, we'd love to visit with you. To be mended. I come wounded to be healed. And I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb and I'm welcome with open arms praise God just as I am just as I
Thank you for your attention this morning. Brother Allen, going to come and share just a quick word with us. Okay, thank you, buddy. Thank you for the good word. Thank you. Wasn't that a good word? Amen. He's a pretty good preacher, isn't he? <laughs> I think one day you may make it. I, I just wanted to take a few minutes to say thank you. To use the church, I've already thanked our life group who was so kind to pray for me and to give and to you as a church. My son left his pastorate in California to come to Serbia to take care of his dad. I don't know what I would have done without him. Every situation God met and dealt with, I, I didn't ask for that. God put people in my life. I was in five hospitals under 10 doctor's cares, 15 different physical therapists, and I will still continue my physical therapy here. And the doctor said that my kind of injuries takes usually about a year in order for them to heal. My goal is to be in Hungary in three months. Serving the gospel, sharing the gospel with those folks. But let me just say, you folks are so kind, so gracious. Your prayers. There were over a thousand people on Facebook from 20 different countries that contacted me and said they were praying for me, encouraging me. Churches in different countries took up special offerings. My son had to raise $30,000 to get me out of Serbia in order to get me to Texas and into the hospitals here. But you helped do that. You were kind. You gave your money, your prayers, your words of encouragement, your friendship. And I, I don't have any problem telling the world about what a great church we have here at Woodland Hills. When I tell them what we see here and what we do here, they just marvel because so many of the towns and cities I go to, they don't have a church like this. They, they just don't have a church. They have to drive many miles or have to go to a Catholic church, but they don't have a church like this. And when I tell them the kind of people that we have and the kind of worship that we have and the kind of giving people we have and the vision that our people have, they just marvel. They just say, oh, oh, we would give anything if we had a church like that. So you mean a lot to me. Have, do, 
and will. And I just wanted to just take a few minutes. My fall was, I've been writing now for the last seven months. It's called The Journey of the Fall. If you've been reading my Facebook page. I fell about eight feet off of a stairway. I didn't have a handrail. And I fell on my left side and broke just about everything on my left side. From my knee all the way up to my shoulder. I could have broken my back. I could have broken my neck. But God, he broke enough stuff just to get my attention. <laughs> I had surgery in Serbia. You don't want to have surgery in Serbia. You, don't, you people who think you want state and uh, universal medicine, you don't want state and universal medicine. I was living in the dark ages for about three weeks in Serbia. I mean, they don't do anything. And uh, when I finally got back to Texas, the doctors were afraid they were going to have to redo all the surgery because the surgery was not done properly. But by the grace of God, it began to heal. I still have some bones that have not been completely healed, but I'm doing therapy, and the doctors told me that we're going to let you go home and you can do your therapy at home because I've been doing it for six months now, and so I pretty well know what to do. But, that's the, but thank you. I love you. God bless you. Thank you for caring for me, loving me, praying for me, and giving to the ministry and giving to me personally. Thank you so much. Well, we do. We praise God for Brother Allen and uh, going back, working for the Lord some more. What an encouragement that is. What a blessing that is. If you'd like to visit with him, Brother Alan, would you mind just standing up here towards the front at the end? If you'd like to come, I know many of you have been praying for a long time and giving. Come shake his hand, give him a hug. I think you can do that, can't you? Okay. So let's stand. Uh, join hands across the aisle. And we're going we're gonna to pray together. We don't sing when I'm preaching because I can't sing. And so we're just going to pray. Um, Brother Scott Mitchell, would you pray for us, please? <laughs> 